What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. You're listening to Give Me The Fear, the Britflix podcast Frightfest 2023 preview series. My name is Stuart Wright, and usually I host this show. But for this genre talent-filled build-up to the Woodstock Gore, I'm keeping stump. When this intro is done, this is the last you're going to hear from me until I ask you to tell your friends all about it. The spoiler-free interviews are brief, and across the entire series, you will discover the kind of knowledge and experience about how to make horror films that they just don't teach you at film school. Are you ready for that? After looking back at the blood, sweat and tears that went into their creative successes, I asked them one last question. If you could handpick one person to be in the audience, alive or dead, famous or personal to you, your fright first screening, who would it be and why? I think you're going to love the answers this question elicits. I certainly do. That's my introduction over with. Let's hear from the talent. I'm delighted to say that I've got a film called Werewolf Santa, which is showing at Frightfest this year. My name is Errol Anthony Hales, and I am the director of that film. What happens when Santa turns into a werewolf on Christmas Eve? Well, it's not good. And uh, you can probably imagine he goes down chimneys and eats families alive and all the rest of it. In terms of pre-production, what's really exciting is when we were out there building a sleigh in the woods and getting the, the snow machine in, and walking our werewolf Santa through in a, in a rehearsal and all the people that he'd be killing and gutting. And it's just such a vast canvas out in a park in the middle of Surrey, pretending to be Hastings, Alexandra Park, because I'm from Hastings. And it was so epic and fun. And it's the closest I've been, I think, to being in a toy shop in a, in a film environment, uh, because werewolves and Christmas and horror... <laughs> 
that was like Christmas Day on whatever day that was in the middle of summer in, uh, yeah, whenever that was. One of the uh, fond memories I have of shooting the movie is that there was a scene involving uh, sexual content. And when we, we shot that, and there was a werewolf Santa involved in that, we give too much away, fun, silly, midnight movie stuff. Um, the owner of the location sat down with me very angry the next day and said, uh, are you shooting a porn? And I said, no, no not shooting a porn. Because what... <laughs> For one, what kind of porn would that be with a, um, a kind of a werewolf Santa and all these naked people that are very, not a category I currently know of. Not that I know any. Um, and so that was just bizarre to sit down and be grilled on uh, being told off because neighbours were walking past the porn shoot with the snow machine and all the nudity. I said, no, it's, it's really not. It's a comedy. It's very silly. and. Um, Talked talk to ourselves around that situation, but I'd never been uh, in detention or <laughs> in the headmaster's office in that way before. An exciting memory from the edit of this film was cracking it. It was really bloody difficult, this thing. Um, and it required a bit of edit rewriting because we didn't get all the coverage I'd have liked to on our limited budgets, always limited budgets on these things sometimes. Um, which is fine because you, you make solutions happen. But but it, it was tough. It was really tough for a long time to kind of throw things together and see clues of where a narrative could be restructured with the coverage that we did have. And eventually it kind of panned out. A uh, couple of reshoots, I guess, a couple of things. And it, it got there. But when we finally locked that up and it kind of made coherent sense, <laughs> that was a very, uh, you know, neck of... Uh, large Bailey's moment. Um, at, a, at a screening of Werewolf Santa, I would love uh, Joe Bob Briggs to be in the audience and touch wood at some point. He can be because there might be some American screenings. So let's see. I'd love to get in for Fright Fest. Um, let's see. I think he has a very, very busy schedule August through September and October and with the Shudder and Joe Bob Briggs and the drive-in. But he's so knowledgeable about horror so much fun to have a drink with i mean joe bob in the phoenix is almost like christ landing or something in my opinion <laughs> amazing um he just is a fright fester through and through he, he he uh and he's been in movies there he's been in a uh, scare package one and i don't know if he appeared in part two uh he's obviously a horror fan through and through so i just think him in any audience like any fright fester is a true fan It'd be great to have him there um I think he's seen it. I think he enjoys the script, at least, when, when he first looked at it. So, yeah, that would be the pick. And let's make it happen. My name is Dominic O'Neill. And on Haunted Oscar Live, I am co-producer, writer and director. Haunted Oscar Live takes place on Halloween night, 1998. And a local TV station investigates poltergeist activity in a haunted house. The script development of pre-production Haunted All Survive wasn't actually that long. We started writing it in summer 2020 and we went into pre-production in September of last year. So it was a little over two years, um, which isn't a very, very long time to go from nothing to something. And we really didn't know that we had a film until we had a house because the whole film takes place in one location. 
And we wanted a very specific kind of house. We wanted a big detached house, very early 20th century. And if we could use the exteriors, we wanted it to be outside on the corner of the street. Everything was going to be focused entirely on the house. So it had to be right. Uh, so we really didn't know we could make the film as quickly as we wanted to unless we got the location. And we were so lucky that as soon as we started pre-production, we put a message out online and within like five hours, I had a message from a homeowner. I had put up the specs online of what we were looking for. I had a message within five hours that they had exactly the house that we were looking for and that it wasn't occupied at the moment. And we went and met them and within a matter of days, uh, we had secured the location and we were lucky as well that it hadn't been modernised. So they did a late 90s um, uh, look and we also had free reign to make a few different touches to it. So without that, the way I looked at it was that, you know, if we had the right location, we could have shot it on a phone if it came down to it, you know, if things got that bad. But without the right location, you don't have a film. It's so important. It's so important to immerse in the audience and the, and the look and the feel because people people would be familiar with the with the kind of film that we were making because we've seen so many TV shows like that. And if we could get that right, then we could just sort of get that little bit of suspension of disbelief to really bring them on board with what we were doing with the film, you know. An exciting memory of shooting the movie was something that I was kind of dreading. Uh, the film takes place mostly inside um, the haunted house, but we do have quite a lot of exteriors because during the night, uh, uh, one of the presenters comes outside and talks to the crowd who are gathered outside. So we were shooting in November because we wanted to get it released for Halloween the following year. Uh, and we wanted to maximise night n- night shoot hours. Uh, so we had to shoot all of our exteriors in one night. And it, I think it was about 14 pages, which sounds nuts. Now, I suppose it's a little bit different because we were shooting document TV documentary style, single camera running around, um, which obviously means that you're... You're, you've got one setup really for, for, for every scene. But if it rained, we didn't really have a backup because there were so many different elements, of course. There was the setup outside, there was extras, there was, we had to put on more catering, obviously, for the extras and all those other different bits and pieces. The way our, our schedule was generally, it was so, so tight because we were shooting the whole thing in about seven days. So we just had to pray that it wouldn't rain. Uh, and it didn't. Miraculously, in the middle of November in Belfast, it didn't rain. It actually wasn't really that cold either. I mean, it was still cold, you know, but um, it wasn't like proper, proper Baltic weather, which is what happens at home. Um, so we were just so lucky because if it had rained that night and we hadn't got that, we, you know, we would have rescheduled and we would have reorganized and everything. But you're 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 constantly thinking about so many different things. And if we had if we'd had to put time into rescheduling all the exteriors for another night during the week, other stuff would have got pushed to the side and you know knock on effect, domino effect of, of what always typically happens in such a short, low budget shoot. So we were so lucky, um, so so lucky with that. Post production was very very interesting because. Um, what I 
thought would happen didn't happen, which probably, uh, you know, is predictable because there's absolutely nothing predictable about the editing process. Um, but I have a particularly fond memory of post-production because um, I thought that we were really going to piece together the film very close to the script where we would have one scene and then all, all of the little inserts that we had, I was pretty sure that we were going to stick closely to the script. But during post-production, we came upon, upon an idea of how we could move the camera around the house in a way that felt organic, it felt real, um, and it helped It helped us use multiple takes of the same scene. We had a real, we had a real worry um, because we were shooting scenes that were maybe three or four pages long, which is a tremendous uh, pressure to put on the actors. We were all brilliant, and we all rehearsed. We had two days of rehearsal, and we had a lot of really fantastic actors, but it's so much pressure on them when you know you're only going to have two or three takes to be doing such long scenes. But we, we worked out how we could put takes together, um, which really, really saved us. We also we also realised that normally in the film, when, when we went to commercial break, uh, we would stay in the house and see behind the scenes. And this is kind of a feature of Haunted All Survive that you kind of, you have the presenters, what's going on, broadcast TV, and then you have the behind the scenes stuff and there's obviously a little bit of behind the scenes drama um, but we, we realised that what we would really like would be to shoot some um, commercials that we could cut to so we had two half days of additional photography uh, in January where we went out It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. And we shot some ads, some local TV, 90s local TV ads. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> because I'm not sure under what other circumstances you would get to do something like that. Uh, uh, and we shot a whole, I won't spoil it for anybody, but we, we shot a whole like 45 second ad, which is pretty brutal, but it is actually representative of some of the advertising that you would get on a kind of anti-terrorism ads that you would get on TV in Northern Ireland in the 80s. Uh, and we saw one of those. And it works with the film. But it was a lovely it was a lovely story thing that if I had come up with it at screenplay stage, somebody would have said, okay, throw that out. You can't do that. It's ridiculous. You know, because you would have, it would have been a whole other location. It would have been new actors. You would have been fitting it into the week-long schedule. It would have been a unit move. And it just, it would have been one of the first things that they would have thrown out. But to come up with it during post-production, we could shoot it with a skeleton crew. There were literally like three of us doing it. Um, so there's a nice lesson there, you know. You can have the full crew working on, on, on the main stuff. And then if there's anything that you're running off to do in a couple of hours, you don't need to have 20 people there. If there was one person that I could have in the audience, uh, and I don't know how high I'm aiming with this, but I actually think Mark Kermode would enjoy our film because I think he has a particular affinity with Belfast. He's over once a year. Um, uh, 
with Cinemagic, and I know he likes Belfast. I think he would get the 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 kind of local humor in it. I think he would get a kick out of the '90s setting and how we kind of used like Northern Ireland TV with the horror stuff um, and with the obvious Ghost Watch influence, which is there. So mark her mode. I honestly, it's maybe not completely beyond the realms of possibility as well. You never know. So my name is Honor Tukel, and I'm the writer and director of the movie Pound Cake. So Pound Cake is about a, a serial killer who's running around New York City, and he's only killing straight white men. And nobody cares because, you know, straight white men now are they're finally getting, you know, they're being held to task for, you know, centuries of oppression, millennial, millennial epochs of oppression. And so no one's taking it very lightly. There's a lot of there's kind of a Greek chorus in the movie of podcasters who are talking and debating about who the killer is and what's happening. And no one really, really gives a fuck that, that straight white men are, are being killed, you know? So, so there's all, some other storylines too. There's a, a father and a, a father and a mother who are coming to terms with their, with their son, who's just come out of the closet. There's uh, uh, I'm in the movie myself, my, myself, I'm an actor in the movie and I play a, a middle-aged man who is um, having problems with his own irrelevance, being a middle-aged man for one, if you're, Oh, if you're an old man, no one gives a fuck about you. But in this, Oh, in this culture, if you're a straight man, you're even worse. You're even worse. You're just a boring straight man. So a cis man. So he's having problems with his own, you know, sexual identification and whatnot. So he's trying to experiment with his wife and do things that are a little bit more, you know, um, uh, fluid, sexually fluid and not so rigid as he calls himself. He feels like a rock and he wants to be sexually fluid. So they're experimenting with things. And and there's some other storylines and and it's all kind of in service of this idea revolving um oh god how can i say this i guess uh i don't want to give it away if i if i say what it is it'll give it away but there's a everything's kind of cohesive and everything's kind of connected by by the serial killer you know there's a serial killer killing everyone all these straight white men basically straight white men in the movie are props to be killed, you know, and for the first time in a long time in a movie, in a horror film, people of color are not no danger at all. Gay people are in no danger at all. It's only cis straight cis white men who are in danger of being killed in unspeakable and horrible ways. And I wanted to make a comedy about that. So um, it's it's a comedy. It's a satire. It's kind of satirizing a lot of things in the current culture and the zeitgeist. And it's satirizing. It's it's making fun of, of kind of everything. I think it, it, it. You know, I think some people it. it it's meant to poke fun at the idea of freedom of speech, not poke fun at the idea of speed of freedom of speech, but celebrate the idea of freedom of speech in art. Anything goes in art, but can you go too far? That's what the question, that's what the movie kind of, you know, it proposes that question basically. This movie was a very, very uh, tricky movie because we were taking a biz- big risk making this film. Because it's not just that the guy, the serial killer, is killing straight white men; it's how he's doing it. It's going to be very controversial, and if you, you know, if you're if you're if you're squeamish or if you're ultra 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 sensitive, you might have a problem with it, right? So I knew before I wrote the script that hey, this movie probably won't get made. So I went to investors first got them all properly drunk on whiskey, you know, gave them my pitch. And it's about a serial killer who kills straight white men. 
And uh, I had five investors in the room all ready to write me a check. They said, this sounds amazing. This sounds great. We'll, we'll, we'll write the check. You'll get your money. And then they said, well, how does he kill? How does he kill the straight white men? Does he, does he kill them with an ax? Does he stab them? Does he you know, poison them? What, how does he do this? And then I reveal how the killer kills the straight white men, which is, again, very controversial. And like uh, four out of the five investors all put their checks back in their pockets and said, no, 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 we, we can't do this. We definitely don't want to be associated with this. But there was one brave investor who said, I'll invest in this. And I knew that I had the money, the bare minimum amount of money I, to, to make this movie. Um, so then I wrote the script. I, I felt like I, it was, it's, it, I'm 51 now and it's hard, you know, time is very valuable. It's valuable for everyone. But the idea of writing a script that wasn't going to be made um, was, you know, it didn't sit, sit well for me. I need to be inspired knowing that I can make the movie. I'm not in the Hollywood system because, you know, in Hollywood, things move slowly for every project that gets made. There's a thousand projects that don't get made. Films get developed, TV shows get developed, and they, and they rarely happen. Most of the times people don't even get paid to develop things, right? So I like to work on things that are a sure thing, which means the budgets have to be a little bit lower um, but you have creative freedom. So, uh, so I, I, I got the investors involved in the, in the script writing process early on. And when the investors came on board, they also helped shape the script. They gave ideas and whatnot. And also I let all my actors, when I write a script, I want the dialogue to seem very, very natural. So I give my actors a lot of latitude to change the dialogue if they want, you know? So I get a lot of feedback from everyone when I'm writing and rewriting and whatnot. So, Yeah. Being on set, one of the most memorable moments of the film was actually the first day of shooting because one of the first scenes we shot was was, was me having a very, very uh, funny sexual um, situation with my wife in the film, which required me to be completely nude, uh, wearing a modesty sock, as they call it in, in, in America. And I, you know, I was very terrified. I haven't been, you know, nude like that, so exposed on camera, uh, you know, really ever, oh, maybe one time before in, in, a, in a project. But it was nervous because it was the first day of shooting. Most of the crew I've never worked with, but it actually broke the ice, you know, to be nude on set, to, and I was the only nude person on set and I'm the director of the, of the piece. And so it, it was great because it put me in a light where I was very exposed and it brought us all together because we're all having a good laugh at my expense. You know, I, I, uh, I you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I have the most, uh, the most sexy body with all my clothes off. So you, you tend, if I ever want to make anyone laugh, I just take my shirt off. And in this case I had everything to, I, I was completely nude. So it was double the laughter. So it brought the, I kind of, I think it was a great, a great icebreaker to, to shoot the movie the first day and for the director to be completely naked in front of everyone directing, directing the scene, you know, so that was fun. And it was, you know, it helped me. I, I was kind of fearless throughout the rest of the movie because of that, you know, because I'd gotten that out of the way first. The post-production process was pretty seamless on this, but there is a, a, a moment at the end of the film where a lot of people sing a song together. And when we, sh we, when, we sh when we recorded the, the chorus singing on the day, it just sounded like it was it didn't sound good. So I had to go back with a microphone and go visit the 30 or so actors that sang in this chorus and go to their individual homes and record them singing into a microphone. So that was kind of a pain in the ass and it took a long time. But but then I had my sound mixer mix all the music together or the composer mix all the music together and it sounded kind of beautiful. But it was a kind of a pain in the ass because we on the day we shot the scene of everyone singing. Uh, it was just, it was, it was miserably cold. We ran out of time. 
it wasn't enough time to get it right. So that, you know, normally on a big budget film, you could bring all your actors into a studio, sing it properly. Everyone's getting paid to do that. But uh, we didn't have the luxury on this to do that. You know, we recorded every singer singing by themselves and then just uh, mixed everything together, you know? Uh, yeah. So yeah, it was, it was time consuming, but uh, gratifying. I think I'd never done anything like that before. You know, I don't know if I ever want to do anything like that again, but it, but it was, yeah, it worked. I think. Well, if we're in ink, we're in London, right? So I just, I got to name two of my, the, the British actors contemporary who I love now. If I saw Steve Coogan in the audience, you know, I, I would love that. If I saw Richard Grant in the audience, I don't know if they live in, uh, in, in London, but uh, if they, if those two were in the audience or one of those guys were in the audience, I would be, I would just be, it would be the greatest night of my life. You know what I mean? Like, I love Steve Coogan. I love Richard Grant. So one of those, one of those assholes, if they were in the audience, I'd be so thrilled, you know? So, but I mean, that's boring. If it was someone who was dead, I'd love my mom for my mom to be in the audience. You know, if my mother was in the audience, I think, well, I must be dead too, because she's dead. And I would think, all right, something's really gone awry here if my mom's in the audience. But if there was a way to like go back in time and say, who could I have in the audience? Anybody would be my mom, obviously, because I I miss her terribly, you know, although she'd be embarrassed as hell watching this. But at the same time, she'd think, you know what? I'm in the audience watching a movie. This is better than being dead, I suppose, even if my son is doing horrible things on screen or at least embarrassing things on screen, you know. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with at least one friend. Put a link out on social media rate and review it for your preferred podcast platform or an ad in Lou Noble the Town Crier whisper in the ear of the town gossip you get the picture it all helps bring new people into the Britflix podcast fold thank you Another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com.